Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode number 15 of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. Happy November 2023. I like November. Do you? I was married on November 8th, so I guess I have good reason to like it. I remember that our wedding day was a Saturday. The sky was crystal clear blue. The sun was out. It was warm. I think for early November, it was very warm. I remember the weather being very nice. Old timers at the church where we were married say that our wedding was the largest and most beautiful that they had ever seen. And they'd seen a lot. That's probably because we did the whole ceremony by candlelight, as I recall. The church was packed. Close to 300 people attended. And there were even more people at the reception in a large hall at a church down the street. You know, packing a large room is not hard to do when you think about my wife's family. Her mom was one of 15 kids. Her dad, John, was one of eight That's a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins, my friend. Plus, my mom's parents, her siblings, all their kids were still alive, and and they attended, plus all the people from church. Wow, that's a lot of people. We were told many times by those that attended that it was the most beautiful, very unique ceremony they had ever seen. So I want to pass along special thanks to Pastor Gary Voss, V-O-S-S, Gary Voss, our former youth pastor for leading the music, and to Pastor D.L. Huffman, our former lead pastor for marrying us. The two of you must have done a very good job of hitching us because we're still married after all these years. And you won't attend a wedding that's as unique as ours. For example, the groom, me, I was dressed in a white tuxedo with tails, white shoes. When's the last time you saw white shoes? I walked down the center aisle with my six-foot-seven-inch best man. And then I sang to my bride-to-be when she came down. I've been to a lot of weddings since ours, but I've never seen that. That's what I mean about unique. Now, here we are all those years later. We have two adult married kids, an additional son and daughter via marriage, Three grandkids, one on the way, two grand dogs, and a grand cat. Happy anniversary, Pam Carter. I love you. I'm very happy that I married you. Let me tell you about a few things that have recently happened for the 1795 group. First of all, the 1795 group now has a formal internship program. We also have a coordinator of student learning, Tyrone Lason. Did you know more than 75 students from around the country applied to work with us for 2024? Plus, we even had one student from a university in Russia apply. I don't know how he heard about us, but he applied. If you'd like to know more about this internship program, you can visit us at https forward slash forward slash 1795 group forward slash internship forward slash or Make it simple, 1795group.com, look for the internship page. Second, let me ask you a question. Why have so few American adults done this? Only about one in three U.S. adults have completed advanced care planning. Are you kidding me? It's free. You don't even have to hire an attorney or even a, I mean, you don't have to hire anybody. You can just have two witnesses that are not related to you by blood or marriage. It's free. So to make it easy for you, we've designed two courses and put them on our 1795 website. One course is for the public, and the other course is for future and present nurses 
and healthcare providers, anyone that will be talking to patients and their families needs to take this course. Don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. As Nike says, just do it. Okay, let's talk about our special guest today. These two have been waiting patiently inside the soundproof studio and listening to me talk. I've been waving to them through the little window in my audio booth here. Hey, Debbie. Hi, Kim. How are you? They're both waving back and smiling. These two are always positive and smiling. I just don't know where they get their positivity. On this episode, my special guests are Deborah Jackson, RN, from Vitas Healthcare, and Kimberly Schmidt, also an RN, from ProMedica Health System here in Northwest Ohio. Both of my guests today are nurses, as you heard. What you don't know, they have a lot of experiences in helping patients and families at the end-of-life phase. I think they'll be able to shed some light on our perplexing question today. Deborah Jackson is my sister, and she's the end-of-life coordinator for the 1795 group. She's a hospice nurse by trade. As I said, she's now employed by Vitas Healthcare, the largest provider of palliative care and hospice care in the nation. She is now a hospice administrator and oversees multiple states east of Ohio. Kim is also a hospice nurse by trade. She's been helping individuals and families at end-of-life phase for more than seven years, and she's employed with ProMedica Health System in Northwest Ohio. Let's see if they have answers to our perplexing question, why don't more Americans do this? It's free. Why don't more Americans do advanced care planning? I hope that you learn from the podcast. Well, hello, this is episode 15 of Grassroots Health. I'm Tim Jordan. I'm your host. I welcome you. This is Why Haven't More Americans Done This? Hmm. My special guests today are Deborah Jackson and Kimberly Schmidt. Hi, Debbie. Hi. Hi, Kim. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for waving back at me and smiling through the little window of the studio here. Since many of our listeners don't know you, please tell them about you. We need to hear about your family, your spouse, any kids, any grandkids, your educational background, your careers, etc. Let's start with Debbie. You go first. Okay. Well, I am married to Kyle. Kyle is a pediatric dentist, and we have two grown kids and three amazing grandkids, which is one of our favorite pastimes when we're not working um, I really have done death and dying my entire career. I did hematology oncology for about 15 years, and then I transitioned into hospice, started as a bedside nurse, uh, worked my way up the ladder, and currently I hold the title of Vice President of Operations for VTOS Healthcare, and I have the Northeast region as my portfolio. So really good to be here with you tonight, Tim. Well, thank you for coming on. Just so you know, Debbie is our end-of-life coordinator for 1795, and we're glad to have her. Kim, you're up next. Who are you? Our listeners don't know you. Yeah, like you said, Tim, I'm Kim Schmidt. Um, I currently live here in Toledo, Ohio. I am married to Brandon. Um, we have three kids together. They are 11, 7, and 5. I went to school here in Toledo. I graduated with my BSN from Lord's College and then went back in 2015 and got my master's. Um, I'm currently working towards my doctorate in nursing education. My background in nursing, I started in acute care. Um, I did nephrology and vascular, so there was some end-of-life um, issues with that po patient population. And then I transitioned to hospice care um, about seven years ago, and I've done both inpatient hospice and outpatient hospice in a variety of roles. Well, welcome to both of you. Thanks for coming tonight. Let's first define our topic for our listeners, shall we? The topic is why haven't more Americans done this? Done what? What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about advanced care planning, advanced care planning. Over 150 research studies that I found, this was a, a meta-analysis where we take a whole bunch of research 
and summarized it, they show that only 34% of American adults have completed advanced care plan. Only 34%. You heard that right. Even fewer have talked to their family members about their wishes. My own research shows this. So what is advanced care planning? Let's define it. Let's start with Debbie. I guess age has... No, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say age has... Um, Be careful. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Let's go with beauty. Beauty has its advantages. <laughs> Let's go with Debbie first. What is advanced care planning? So advanced care planning, I would say, is discussing and preparing for future decisions about your medical care if you become seriously ill or unable to communicate your wishes. Um, so, it's, so it's having those discussions. Who do you and, discuss and with? You want to discuss that with your family or whoever you'll be choosing to make those decisions for you if you would be incapacitated. Okay, so if someone can't talk, let's say they have a traumatic brain injury, they fall off a bicycle, they can't speak for themselves, they would have to appoint someone to speak for them. That's what you're talking about. They'd have to talk to that person ahead of time. Advanced means Correct. ahead of time. Kim, anything you want to add? Um, I, you know, Debbie did a great job with the definition. Um, you know, it's not even only not being able to talk, but also with the increase in Alzheimer's and dementia in our population. Um, you know, those people with the cognitive issues still need somebody to make their wishes known for them. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Alzheimer's keeps climbing up the list of the top killers of Americans. And we talk about, in my field, uh, we talk about you know getting to those people ahead of dementia, to, ahead of Alzheimer's, before their mind goes, so to speak. And you can talk about what they want when they're cogent, when they're effective, effectively knowing what's going on. So what are the key documents and elements involved in advanced care planning? What documents do we use, Kim? You, you're a hospice nurse. Debbie's a hospice nurse. You're at the bedside. What, what documents do we use to write down what people want? Yeah, so there's a few different documents. Um, the first one is a living will, and that is just something somebody fills out to let doctors, medical professionals, or their family know what treatments they do or do not want. Um, and then there's the big one, which is a durable power of attorney for health care. And that's actually when people appoint their representative or their proxy um, who they want to make their decisions for them when they no longer can. And then also code status is a big document in advanced care planning, um, whether or not you want to be a full code or if you want comfort care only when the time comes. Um, things like that all kind of go together as part of advanced care planning. So let me see if I understand. You said a living will tells what medical treatment people would want if they can't speak for themselves, especially if they're like terminally ill or have a life-shortening yeah. illness. That's that's the what, right? Is that correct? All yeah. Right. And then you said durable power of attorney, but that's not durable power of attorney, but you said durable power of attorney for health care. And that says who, that's going to be your who you choose to speak for you if you can't. And the third one is a do not resuscitate order. And I think that that kind of document has to be written by a healthcare provider. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. It has to be signed by a healthcare provider. Are there any other documents that we use in advanced care planning? Sometimes we could include organ donation in that. I usually like do. To be an organ uh, donor. For my yep. college students, as I teach this to them, I say there's four. Because they, I mean, just going to the license bureau and renewing your license, I don't think that's good enough for me. It's not good Correct. enough for me. But on the on the document, I can say, well, what organs do I want to give? Which ones do I want? I don't want to give, right? And so I would recommend the fourth document be an online form. You can find it online. All these are free, by the way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cost you a dime. And so there are four advanced care documents, advanced care planning documents. So both of you are involved in hospice, is that right? Yes. All right, so you both are RNs. Debbie's a big-time administrator now with Vitas Healthcare. Um, by the way, Vitas 
if you're listening or if you want to know. It's the largest provider of hospice care, and I think even palliative care, maybe in the United States. Kim has been employed by ProMedica Health System here in Toledo, Ohio, for at least seven years. She's been a hospice nurse. So here's my question to you both. Since you've both been with patients who are dying, and you've been with their family members, obviously, I'm sure that these hospice patients have done advanced care planning, correct? We'd like to take that. Kim, I'll let you start us off on that one. Kim, you go. (laughs) You're shaking your head and you're smiling. So what do you say to that? No, most people do not complete advanced care planning. Um, And unfortunately, when it's not done, that responsibility falls. um, It depends on the state, but most often it's the next of kin. Um, They have to then make the decisions on behalf of the patient without kind of any direction as to what to do or what their wishes are. That's a real Um, real stressful burden. I mean, I don't know what... It is. If somebody wants, I'm all thrust in that position all of a sudden. That's a tough one. And it also may fall to a person that doesn't share your end-of-life desires. Um, It may be something or somebody that is not either emotionally ready um, to follow through with what you wanted for your end-of-life care. Um, And then in some states, if there is no uh, person assigned, then that goes to the courts to assign somebody on your behalf. Mm, That's never good. So Kim Kim has said, as a hospice nurse, she's seen a lot of patients. If I'm reading you right, you said you've seen a lot that haven't done it. Debbie, what have you seen? I think Kim and I have similar experiences. Um, most people get down to that point. And, you know, many of the patients that we see as hospice nurses have 12 to 24 hours to live sometimes, right? We get later referrals, and I know we'll discuss that a little bit later, but um, not a lot of time to, to figure all that out. So it is amazing the percentage of people um, that we see that have not even thought about it. Maybe they've had a discussion, but they've shied away from it because family members didn't agree. You know, maybe a, a father doesn't want life-sustaining measures, but his kids so badly want him to live and he doesn't want to hurt their feelings. So just some different reasons, but certainly we have a lot of work to do with education because we see the bulk of our patients and families who are not prepared for this. And as Kim said, it's a burden on those people that are left in emergency situations um, to make those decisions for you. This came up, this issue of uh, family disagreeing came up in my last episode with the nieces of Nancy Cruzan. As you know, Nancy Cruzan was the first right to die with dignity case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes. And the youngest daughter, Miranda, said, and Miranda, if you're listening, I'm sorry to use your name, but, you know, Miranda said this. She said, it's different when it's your mom. Um, All of a sudden, my mom went from active chemotherapy and radiation to she said, I want hospice. I said, no, no. It was like an emotional reaction. This is your mama. You're going to lose your mom. And, And so I think it does... It does serve as an advance, like, directive. It tells people in your family what you want. And I know, Debbie, we recently, or you recently had the death of a loved one. That was your mother-in-law, Barbara Jackson. Talk to us about what she wanted. Yeah, that we were immensely blessed to have some time with her toward end of life. We knew um, she had a life, life-threatening illness, it was progressing rapidly. Um, what was her age? She was 92. 92 years uh, old. And we went up to see her this last weekend of, of really quality time we had with her. And it was just Kyle and I in her assisted living. And I sat down with her and I said, you know, Barb, I have to put my hospice hat on for a moment. And I, I need to talk and have a real direct conversation with you because... Um, we want to give you the death that you deserve. And I want to talk that through with you. And so we talked about it and she was so eloquent in making her wishes known. She said, 
The thing that scares me the most is suffering. I don't want to suffer. I made her a promise. You don't have to suffer. We have everything that we need to keep you comfortable. She said, I want to die in hospice inpatient because I feel like that's where they'll be able to keep me the most comfortable and I want to be surrounded by my family. So she so we were, she wanted to die in an inpatient, she did. not at home. She did. I think she, she was living that. in a nursing home, right? She was in an assisted living, yes, and in a small apartment and she wanted to die in that setting because in her mind, it's more controlled. Um, and she said, but I want my family there. So- you know, down to we we talked about what that looks like and what what the journey would be and what medications we'd be using, and so we were able to to honor that. She had a very peaceful, beautiful death with her family surrounding her. So um, it doesn't happen like that a lot. That's an intentional thing that you need to make happen, and it wasn't an easy discussion to have because nobody likes to talk about that. those last hours and days, but so important because at the end, when it was all said and done, the family felt very good that they were able to honor her wishes and give her what exactly what she asked for. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So the, the key question tonight in this episode is, and we're recording at night, by the way, in case you're wondering, um, why haven't more Americans completed advanced care plan. I don't understand why only 34%. In your opinion, and we'll start with Kim, do you think, should younger adults do this? Should somebody that's 25 do it? 24? I mean, why don't more Americans do this, Kim? Well, I think you're right that it's, that younger people don't think that they should do it. I think that advanced care planning Um, comes across as something that older individuals need to have. But I 100% believe that anything can happen at any time. Um, You know, nothing is ever um, given to us. We could, you know, have an accident when we leave here today. You just never know. And it's important that you are naming the person that you want to make your decisions for you. Um, especially if you're a, you know, in your 20s or 30s, maybe you're not married yet, but you're not also relying on your parents anymore. And there's somebody more fitting to make those decisions for you. That's something that you should complete no matter what age you are. Yeah, you think about it, as I recall from teaching this, I think the number one cause of death of young adults is motor vehicle accidents. And so how many of them are on rollerblades? How many of them are riding bicycles and might fall off? How many of them might fall off a ladder and have a traumatic brain injury? I mean, I think there's, I don't know how, I forget what the statistic is, but it was millions of people every year have a traumatic brain injury. And when you have a traumatic brain injury, you you can't talk. I mean, you typically are out of it for a couple weeks at least. Um, So I agree with you. I think anyone who's over 21 really should do this. Debbie, anything you want to add? No, I think especially for those two, we need to think about that are looking toward end of life and re- and wishing or requesting non-life sustaining. It's especially important because in our, in our healthcare um, forum today, all resources available to sustain life is what is where we're at, right? We don't think about it that way, but truly, doctors are trained to heal and cure. And so to be put into our healthcare system, it's foreign to say in the healthcare system, you know, I want to be kept comfortable. The easier and the path of least resistance is all resources that we have will be used to sustain your life. So I think just as you and Kim were discussing so important that those wishes are discussed and especially for those who are looking for um, non-life sustaining and comfort measures at end of life. Yeah, I agree. So what do you think are some common misconceptions or myths about advanced care plan? Let's go to Debbie first. What are some common misconceptions or myths about it? One thing that I hear consistently is my family knows what I want. 
And, and we know that to not be true. I, I actually read a study this week that said one out of every three that the family was, the assumption was that the family knew what they wanted. One out of every three got it wrong. Wow. That's staggering when you think about it. So just assuming that your family knows, I think, is one. And then I think just general, the other one that I see is there's a real lack of knowledge just in general. You know, you think about people that don't, maybe that 92 or 93-year-old that doesn't have a medically intuitive family or doesn't have much family at all. That's a confusing process for them. And so, you know, just basic lack of knowledge, I think, plays a big part as well. Kim, what misconceptions or myths might people have about advanced care planning, in your opinion? I think some people think that it's expensive, um, that you have to go to a lawyer or get the forms notarized, uh, which can be seen as a inconvenience to some people. Um, a lot of confusion about what each form means or like what they do need to fill out, what they don't. Um, I have heard that some people think that once you sign those forms that you're kind of giving up your ability to make your own decisions, um, which is not not true at all. Um, or that it's only for individuals that don't want life-sustaining treatment and that if they want everything done, what's the point of completing these forms. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, you know, I teach this every, every semester at the university to college students and they think it's number one for old people only. I don't need to do it because I'm not old. I'm going to die when I'm 85. That's what they think. They don't know that people fall off of skates and bikes and stuff every day. And then second, they, they think it's really expensive. Like I have to hire an attorney or a lawyer. You don't have to hire anybody. It's, it's free. So those are some common misconceptions. And I think, I think people stay away from it, honestly, because we live in a death-denying society. I mean, the bigger picture here is our culture, our society, is, is the yes. umbrella over all of us. And we don't like to talk about death. Physicians don't like to talk about it. They don't like to think about it. You know, many physicians view death as a medical failure. And when you feel like it, you failed, what do you do? You stay away from it. You don't go buy it. You don't touch it. So I think that's the deeper issue. What are some challenging cases or ethical dilemmas related to advanced care planning that you've witnessed or you've heard of? Debbie, I think you mentioned, or maybe it was Kim, that sometimes family members may disagree. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who's going? Probably more than not. Why don't you take that? What, what, what have you seen? I think from my standpoint, this some of the most tragic situations that I've seen, misalignment in families is is definitely up there. But when there's money involved, mm. wow, money brings family out of the woodwork. We have family coming from all, all parts of the country when there's death on the horizon many times. And it can be something as small as... Um, you know, there's a social security check in play or a house being lived in with that patient um, that, you know, if we rush that death in their thinking, that's going to go away for us. So no thought to what's best for that patient sometimes, but more so what are we going to gain or lose and what's our agenda? Especially it's when there's sad. money involved, as you said. Yes. Yeah, Debbie, that's what, a great point. What have you seen, Kim? Because I've also seen that, you know, we don't we don't want the Social Security checks to stop coming. Um, when they pass, they're going to take the house away from us. And this is where we live. Um, so they're prolonging the process for their own personal gain. Um, another thing that I see often is that uh, maybe one child is medical so yes. they are the named um, power of attorney, but another child is the one that's in town caring for the patient there every day, seeing the decline, but that medical professional that might be on the other side of the country is the one making decisions. Um, and unfortunately, that puts the person that's actually caring for the patient in a tight spot. Yeah, it really puts them in a tight spot. 
I talk a lot in my classes, death and dying classes, about how many of you come from divorced homes? Or about 60% raise their hand and say, I come from divorced home. And I said, if your mom or dad live apart, they probably don't agree on your care. So who's going to be the biggest and have the deepest voice? Who's going to yell the loudest? Who are the doctors maybe going to be afraid of? And they all say, my dad. I said, it's exactly right. So if dad and mom don't agree, you need to step in and do advanced care planning so that you can have these things assured of you. If you've been uh, tuning in, you've been listening to episode 15. And this is November of Grassroots Health. Welcome to November, by the way. I've been talking to Deborah Jackson. She's an administrator with Vitas Healthcare and Kimberly Schmidt. She's a hospice nurse for more than seven years with ProMedica Health System here in Northwest Ohio. Both guests today are, are RNs, they're nurses. They've both helped many patients die with dignity while these patients have been in hospice care. So let me, let's talk about hospice care for a minute. I think it was episode seven of this podcast, I had hospice nurse Penny as my guest. She's quite a character. And she has like a billion followers on all these different <laughs> social media things. She does these videos you always see. She's what we call an influencer, right? And I remember she said something during that episode that was very interesting to me. She said this physician that she knew, I guess was an oncologist because she said the woman had young woman had breast cancer. He called seeing how this patient was doing. And Nurse Payne took the call and she said, well, she's dead. And the physician seemed very shocked, surprised by it. Like, And Nurse Payne said, well, aren't you the... She said to me, she says, wasn't he the guy that referred her to hospice? Didn't want, I think she's going to live forever. But he was shocked. So what's been your experience, Debbie, with physicians and other healthcare providers? Are they death accepting? They can pivot easily from you know, the curative, active care, chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, to hospice care. What's been your experience? I think some of that depends on the specialty. Truly, I think, you know, oncologists probably struggle with that a little bit more with investigational drugs and, you know, the newest and, and trial drugs and all of that goes into that. Um, it is It is not, I don't think it's easy for any physician to pivot with that. And I think it's an uncomfortable um, discussion to have. You know, I, I just think for anybody, really, that's it's not a fun discussion to have. I, some of us, because of our training and because we've done it for so long, tend to look at it differently. But, you know, I think especially, I would say, in the last post-COVID, the hospice landscape is different. Um, for VTOS, I can speak to say that you know, definitely a little later referrals on the horizon that we're seeing, a, a shorter length of stay. Um, I do think that, you know, put a plug in for Jimmy Carter here. I think he's going to help us with that landscape of hospice with, he's been on six months now, just had his six month mark. Um, that's really when we do our best work. We have time to build rapport with the family. We have time to get, help them get their affairs in order. So those are the kind of referrals that we really do better than than working in crisis time. But I do think it's a difficult conversation across the board, and I think Kim would agree with me as she'll share with us that we have a lot of work to do to, to educate and to continue to help people see the, the, the longer the length of that benefit and the longer they're on service, the better it is. So I'll, I'll pivot over to Kim on that. Kim, one. what do you see yeah, with Debbie, physicians? I agree. Um, most of our referrals do not come from specialty physicians. Um, really, they many do not come from primary care offices either. Our main referral sources are hospitals and long-term care or skilled nursing facilities. Really? Not um, from those physicians? Those are where most of the referrals. No. Huh. Um, I didn't know that. So it's the physicians working in like long-term care facilities. Yes. Um, I did have one oncologist. He would refer patients very early. He was amazing. And he would call and check on them on a weekly basis. Um, my also, another experience I have is that 
primary care doctors don't want to follow their patients on hospice. They kind of want to turn over all the care to the hospice physicians. Or if they do follow, they definitely don't feel comfortable with the types of medications that hospice provides their patients to keep them comfortable. Yeah, my own research in this area, first we did a a national study of internal medicine residencies, and we talked to program directors, you know, about what they do. And we found that they were woefully insufficient in the education they provided to internal medicine residents who internal medicine doctors see older patients, right? They see patients who need someone who accepts death. They don't. So the study I have going now with Kelvin, if you're listening, Kelvin, you know that you're famous now. Uh, Kelvin is doing physician assistance. There's physician assistant programs all across the country. There are 303 accredited programs, and he's getting ready to, in fact, tomorrow. I think he proposes tomorrow. He's proposing his study. But we're going to send a survey to program directors again about the quality and quantity of end-of-life education provided to those healthcare providers. I'm guessing, I'm just guessing, this is an educated guess. This is the third dissertation we've also done on Ecology Fellows. I'm guessing that they're going to also show that that's not good. It's been insufficient. And we do have, as Debbie said, we do have a lot of work to do with physicians. Many physicians refer late, don't refer at all, as you know. So let me ask you this. What are, what are some specific cultural or religious considerations that can influence advanced care planning discussions and decisions? Let's start with Kim. What are some cultural and religious considerations that, that might influence advanced care planning discussions? Um, I think that for some, it's just about the difference in openness of having these types of conversations. Um, Some families or some people from certain backgrounds, they don't want to tell the patient that they're terminal. Um, They keep that information from them, which in my experience, the patient usually knows that they're dying. Um, But yeah, and there's some distrust of healthcare for some. Um, and that really makes it difficult to provide quality end-of-life care. Do you think the patient distrusts hospice or hospice nurses? Some do. Based on I feel their... like some people think that we come in and kill people. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that in Episode 7. I talked with hospice nurse Penny, as I mentioned, and we talked about myths. I think that was one of her first ones. She said, hospice yeah. kills people. That's a misunderstanding. We hasten death. Yeah. Yes. Yep. They yes. don't. You guys don't. No. But that's a perpetuated myth out there in this society. Debbie, what do you see about cultural religious considerations? I think, you know, religion plays a part. I've seen that where doing advanced care planning is a lack of trust in God definitely weighs on people or even just people that truly 100% believe that, you know, God is going to um, intervene and heal them. And so there's really no reason to plan. Um, that, That plays a part. And that's one, you know, you have to navigate very carefully because that's their prerogative and their faith is so much of what gets them through the hard journey, but um, it definitely plays a part in planning when they're, when planning is compared to trust in God and faith. So I think that, and then I think there's also, as Kim said, the comfort or not of discussing death, but also I think if we look at, um, I think there, you know, there's some documented studies that if we look at the African-American population, the Hispanic population, they're really more likely to wait for life-sustaining drug treatments Um, So I think that plays a part. And I think the most important part is knowing your audience and knowing what's my communication style need to be. Read my room. Who am I speaking with? And what's the best way to communicate um, to help them plan? Tell us about the hospice nurse that you encountered recently with Barb Jackson and her family. What was she like? We had some amazing nurses and we had um, some good nurses. But one of our amazing nurses, 
was our admission nurse, who Kim knows. We've talked about her, and I asked Kim to share kudos with her. But I was so impressed. And I have to tell you, with as many years as I have in the death and dying arena, sometimes you have to try to impress me because I feel like I've done it long enough that I have my way, right? So she came in to, um, to do the admission part and the hospice presentation part to Barb and her family. And for the most part, alignment in the alignment with where we wanted to end up, maybe not so much yet on how we were going to get there. And she came in and sized that up. And she, before anybody could even bring um, questions or confrontation to the table, she stayed ahead of that and she said, you know, you might be thinking this, but let me tell you what I think about that and how we can get through that. And it was just the most beautiful experience. By the time she left, everyone was bought into hospice philosophy <coughs> and um, just very skilled at doing that. And that does take skill. You, you, you know, it's not a cookie cutter as Kim knows, especially Kim, I know you do with some on-call work. You're at, there at time of crisis. You got to get in. You got to read your room, and you got to know how do I best help this situation. So we were immensely blessed to have a wonderful nurse um, for that first visit to present hospice. And that's really good that you had such a nurse. We won't mention her on the air here, but uh, you know who you are if you're listening. And kudos to you for being so good. It also takes a lot of experience to know yes. what people might say and what they might be thinking. And obviously she knew that. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about religious considerations. I'm interested. You said that people may delay advanced care planning because they have faith in God that God may heal them. So they don't do it. Do you think that their children agree? Have you found that their children agree in those cases or not? Or what, what happens? I would say probably not as much the children in alignment with that. That is definitely more. I see that in the older population, you know, 75 and older. That was something that I would see consistently. I don't know, Kim, have you seen that same phenomenon with, with patients? Yeah. Um, or I'll see it the other way around, that the patient is ready, but the family is holding out hope. Good point. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we haven't talked about the patient wanting to die, being ready, and the, and the children not wanting her, because this is your mama, right? It's yes. your daddy, it's your grandpa, it's your grandma, as Miranda said. Um, but I just wondered, because I've in Death and Dying, we see both. I mean, I've met a lot of religious people in my day, and some people are death-avoiding because they say, I'm not ready. I, I know mm -hmm. I'm not living by my faith by the tenets of my faith, and I'll probably go to hell. You know, I'll face judgment. And then, so they're scared of death. Others say, why isn't God taking me? You know, I've been ready for months. How come I'm sitting here? Like, I've been praying for him to take me. I've seen both. I just wonder what you, what side you came down on. So, so, so many U.S. adults don't do this, right? I mean, 34% have. Take a 100 minus 34, what is that? 66%? haven't. So 66% haven't, 67% haven't. Let's talk about resources and tools that are available to assist people. I mean, that's what they need. They need resources and tools. So Kim, what have you found? What are some resources that you have found that have been useful to you? Um, well, I think that the 1795 group has some really good resources and tools to help people. Um, I don't say that just to flatter you, Dr. Jordan. Oh, um, I really, okay. I really do believe it. Um, I know you have a very extensive 23-year history teaching end-of-life issues um, and your death and dying course at the university level um, clearly shows on the website and it's an excellent course. Um, by the way, in addition by the way, we need to say in all honesty, Kim has helped team teach with me. I think it was last fall. Is that right, Kim? You were part yeah. of your doctor program. And even though I've, I've been a hospice nurse, I learned so much from that course um, because it's a 
a different take on sure. death and dying than just, you know, all clinical. Yeah. Um, it, it, the first half of the course is all sociological. It's all cultural. So Yeah. It's so, great. In addition so. to the podcasts and blogs that we have on the course website, what else have you found to be helpful? Well, there's a... Um, there's a lot of information out there to help people with advanced care planning. Um, I believe that on the website and in one of the courses, there are tons of links to really helpful um, websites that are geared toward advanced care planning. Um, click of a button and you're there with all the information right at your fingertips, which is the you know excellent thing with technology. Um, and then you know the some of the courses that all three of us have worked on to design uh, were made specifically with, you know, the audience um, in mind when we were doing these courses. Yeah, I will say there are going to be two courses on the website. Uh, right now, it's not quite November, I will tell you, and we're trying to get them ready, but there'll be two courses on the website. Debbie, would you tell us about those courses? Because the three of us did work together on these, and I don't want to take credit for them when credit is not due. So what are the two sure. courses? Sure. We had a lot of fun working on these together. Course number one was designed for the general public and teaches them all about advanced care planning. It's available for a one-time cost of only $19.99, and I would really highly recommend it. Um, just a lot of good um, what to do, what not to do, how to, just it really simplifies it. So you'll find that very beneficial. Course number two is for future or current nurses, physicians, and other healthcare providers. If you talk with patients, this is the one you should purchase and do this course. Um, here's the problem. Many nurses and healthcare providers do not know how to support patients and their families in navigating advanced care planning. They're not trained well on how to initiate the conversation, and they view a referral to hospice as defeat, as giving up and equating death as medical failure. Furthermore, many nurses get caught in the middle and have to do things they should not have to do. Um, so Dr. Jordan, you know this well from your own research and from experiences of nurses and nurse practitioners who have spoken to you, right? I have. I mean, my own two kids I remember when my daughter Katie came home, she was living at home and working at a local hospital and a doctor asked her to do something that she shouldn't have had to do, and that is go talk to a patient and his whole family was around the bed and she had to tell the patient, go get your things in order. What's that even mean? So I've, I've had personal experience, you're right. Yes, absolutely. So. This course is available for a one-time cost of $24.99. And again, um, can just I can't say enough about how helpful these resources are and really highly recommend it. Yeah, thank you both for working on these courses and helping me. Uh, I think the thing that I really like about them for both is they have, no matter what state you live in, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Arizona, California, Nevada, doesn't matter what state, if you put the name in, it'll call up for you your advanced directives, and you can print them and do them for free. On this episode of Grassroots Health, you've been listening to Deborah Jackson. Deborah is an administrator with Vitas Healthcare and Kimberly Schmidt. Kim is a hospice nurse for more than seven years here locally in Toledo. Both guests are RNs, and both have helped many patients die with dignity while these patients have been under hospice care. I always give my guests the last word, always. And so you're going to have the chance to speak to our listeners directly. Is there anything that either of you would like to say to our listeners about advanced care planning? Let's go to Debbie first. Anything well, you'd like to say, Debbie? So I'm just going to say, I promise you, if you find the courage to initiate these discussions and have meaningful conversations with the right people, you will not regret it. It is something, um, it's somewhat of a legacy to leave. And I, I just encourage anybody who's listening, whether you're 16 years old or 69 years old or 99 years old, it's for you and really encourage you to take action and, and complete advanced care planning. 
Thank you, Debbie. Anything, Kim, that you'd like to say directly to our listeners in closing? Yeah, I would like to say that you never know what is going to happen. Um, I believe that it is better to be prepared and not need your advanced directives for many, many years than something tragically happen and you end up burdening your family with having to make your medical decisions for you um, without knowing what you would have wanted. Yeah, thank you. And I will say, as Miranda Lewis said on the last podcast, she said, things change. You can always adjust your advanced directives like her mom did. Mm -hmm. Her mom, I think, was 57. Uh, She had young grandkids. She was working on a master's degree. And she said, do I want chemo or not? And do I want radiation or not? And what they thought she would never say yes to she said yes to for a while. And then she went into hospice and, and died six months later. So things change. Our lives change. Yes. Our, our status change. You can always change your advanced directives, and it's free. Thank you, Deborah Jackson, Kimberly Schmidt, for coming on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. Next month in December of 2023, you'll want to listen to that podcast also. In that one, I interviewed Nicole Kerr. If you haven't heard Nicole Kerr, she's very famous. She had a car accident, and she was thrown from the vehicle. And all the bystanders that were there to help, they told the EMTs, she's already dead. She's dead. Don't try and help her. She, and she was dead. But she came back to life, and she talks about what she heard, what she saw, Um, it's really changed her life. So make sure you listen to December 23 episode. I'll talk to you then. Remember, as the Dalai Lama said, be kind whenever possible. And it's always possible. We'll see you next month.